Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Singapore, but soon uh, the United Kingdom, is Rupert Evel. Rupert is founding director of Ethics Insight, and today we're going to be talking about good decision making. First, Rupert, thank you for taking the time away to talk to us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, my pleasure. So let's start with the bad part. What leads to bad decision making? Uh, there's there's a lot of things that lead to bad decision making, which I imagine will be familiar to a lot of people because we all do it in various spheres of life. But in terms of the sort of from a compliance perspective, I think the big one is pressure. So whether that be time pressure, uh, money pressure, I you know to hit targets, or pressure from a manager or a leader being told to do something. Other broader sort of decision making areas might come from assumptions when you make a decision based off an assumption. There's also ethical sort of hazing where we justify our poor decision by you know other good things we do in our life or a sort of a, a denial of the victim or maybe not wanting to see a sort of almost like a moral carbon offsetting. Um, the other thing I think is really interesting is we judge ourselves by our intentions but others by actions and the easiest way to demonstrate this is something I do in, in workshops where I, I ask people how ethical are you and majority of people will or sorry are you an ethical person and most people will say yeah most of the time or all of the time and then I ask them are other people ethical and they'll say some of the time not that often you know and so we look at others and we judge them on their actions but we're judging ourselves on our intentions I think in a compliance perspective, the other thing I'd say, particularly in emerging markets, is, is poor preparation and being reactive, um, being caught on the hop by particularly hostile stakeholders or you know, corrupt officials, extortive attempts, things like that. And um, that sort of in turn leads to people not considering outcomes. I, I think incentives have a massive part to play, um, particularly in certain areas of financial services, parts of investment banking, where there's a I'll be gone, you'll be gone culture, which can sort of take away the sting from bad decisions and um, I guess what else um, not understanding uh, what's actually going on like the I know it sounds strange but there's a lot of situations where people don't want to appear foolish and so they might not fully understand what's going on particularly if they're in an unfamiliar place and then they make poor decisions off the back of that so that would be a whistle-stop tour but I'd go for pressure as the number one in a compliance sense no, it's a very good whistle-stop tour because it really covers the gamut from those with malignant intent to those who are a little bit innocent and not really sure what they're doing and so blunder on. And I particularly like the fact that you raise the issue of incentives. Um, I think as we all talk about risk assessments, we tend to look at legal and ethical risk areas rather than looking at what the incentive plan is because that's often a roadmap for where the compliance failures come. Now, you advocate four steps for making good decisions, and uh, I'd like to go through them one by one if that's okay. Um, first, you advocate to consider possible outcomes. Seems obvious enough, but is it? Um, I think the, I remember one of my mentors once said, if you're a hammer, all you see is nails. And, and that's not like a criticism. Um, we all have a, you know, the predispositions that come from our professional background and our personality type. So just to give a, a cliche, I've seen in numerous sort of board settings, a very different um, perception of outcomes from say a CEO versus a CFO, someone who's 
more looking at risk and downside and cost versus somebody who's maybe more um, looking at opportunities and a, a sort of a more of a glasses half full mentality. So getting the, the opinions, uh, plural, uh, sorry, a plurality of opinions really does matter. But one of the challenges is the way you do that. So there's a, some interesting studies, including one at Harvard, where when people are asked to raise hands, they sort of aggregate towards majority, even if that majority is uh, incorrect. Whereas when you ask people to write down um, their answers, we get a much greater sort of spread of opinion. So the um, one, in a sort of a crisis situation, one of the first things I'd always do would be to ask people to write down outcomes because you don't want them to discuss them out, out loud. You want to get those um, uh, different perspectives. And then people will start to recognize that there are... Um, you know, maybe local insights they're lacking or that, you know, to use the rump thing, the unknown unknowns. And uh, it's, um, it, I think it's a lot more helpful when we sort of gather opinions uh, and consider different outcomes independently. Well, and it avoids the whole group thing phenomenon where everyone's yeah. just so eager to find a consensus. Nobody's asking the hard questions. Now, you next advise considering the likelihood of each outcome. What's the best yeah. way to do that? Um, well, this is uh, something that I, I did the wrong way for a long time uh, because I sort of came from the kind of classic risk assessment training where we would have likelihood, which would sort of be words. So, you know, rarely or uh, to almost certain and with probable and possible and things in between. And then I saw various studies uh, by NATO, by uh, I can't remember, uh, The Economist, I think, did one where um, they show that. The, those words have terrific range. So for some people, possible can span everything from almost you know, unlikely through to almost certain. So I think um, numerical or uh, swipers are better. We now have these tools like Mentimeter where we can do swiping from agree to disagree, which I think is quite intuitive. But numerical is interesting because at the aggregate, when we're asked to sort of guesstimate, we're quite, ac um, we're quite accurate, apparently. There's a, an interesting NPR study when people were asked to guess the weight of a cow and uh, they came out, the, the, the general public came out at, at, at the aggregate point more accurate than the experts. So I think if we're asking people to um, do it numerically or using a swiper, we're also overcoming uh, language issues in terms of people not understanding the words, but also people apportioning um, their own narrative around what a particular word means in terms of likelihood. And, you know, I, I agree with you. It's interesting to see what, possible is a great word means for some people for little kids for example possible anything is possible uh, yes. and don't have that ability to weigh the differences and i think sometimes as adults there's more kid in us than we think now third would be to rank the preferred outcome and its likelihood how is that different from the previous two steps so i think the if when we're um considering things together after doing, so we've done the independent bit in terms of the um, outcomes and we're doing the likelihood. Then at this point you're coming together and then it's, that's where brainstorming and, and independent and different views and different perspectives on um, various scenarios come in. And I think what we're, what I'm looking for out of this step is, yes, there is a sort of iterative going back between the others, but it's, it's to identify where there are assumptions in our decision-making and then work out which of these we need to test. Because uh, I think the, um, the other thing that you'd be looking for at this stage is to start to actually sequence your strategies in terms of how you're going to manage this risk issue. So is it one about avoidance, resistance, mitigation, escalation? You know, what, what is it we're looking at? And the, it's not just one of those topics. So I think at this stage, the, um, 
um, the, just because something, you know, the, the most high likelihood event might not be the optimal outcome. So then we need to kind of think about, well, what could we do going into that final stage to uh, alter that? Uh, because it's not like these things are always immutable. And that's where assumptions are incredibly important. And recognizing that we have assumptions that we may not be uh, articulating, but maybe driving our decisions much more than we exactly. would like. Now, yeah. finally, you advise considering what could be done now to change the likelihood of the preferred outcome. Is that an argument for starting right away, finding the easy beginning steps, or something altogether else? It can be. So if I give one example, so that I've been um, – numerous occasions there's a variation of this story the most recent one was um, the local team taking out a um, client that they're trying to win for a massive massive contract to an incredibly lavish dinner uh, the expatriate country manager turns up and in horror sort of uh, sees the the bill and has to kind of intervene as the fun killing foreigner and that kind of leaves a, a bad taste in everyone's mouth so by that point when he's turning up the your options are somewhat limited but if we take a step back and we're doing some sort of root cause analysis what happened there well, you, you didn't plan you, you lost control of the interaction so if you had chosen the venue as the the company if you had um, spoken to the the venue the restaurant and um, agreed on a menu and agreed on acceptable sort of um, wine list or whatever it was then it's not a, it becomes a non-issue so I think there is sometimes there's a, a what could we have done better element um, but again, it's the, um, as you said, people have a terrific habit of making decisions off, the, off assumptions. I want them to test assumption. Um, and the, I think sometimes we're, because we talk about often difficult conversations, people struggle. And getting them to just buy time, blame compli compliance, if you like, for sort of approvals taking a while, whatever it needs be, we want people to then take that step back and start to sequence their strategy. So what are we going to start with? Is, it's, um, are we going to start with resistance? Are we going to start with an outright no? Are we going to try to do alternative incentives? There's various options that you have. So the way the I know it's a severe example, but in the past life, I was sort of responding a lot to extortions and, and kidnaps and things like that. And you never, um, in the first negotiation, just show all your cards. And I think that's something we tend to forget is that we have uh, options. We um, we don't it we don't always have to uh, make an immediate decision. So it's it's sort of using that sort of hostage negotiation strategy to not show all your cards at once, particularly when you're managing challenging external stakeholders. Yeah, and it's it is one of those things where we we do tend to often look to the end, not realizing we're not there yet. Well, Rupert, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us. It was a very fascinating conversation. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Tittletaup from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.